Welcome to The Grid, the healthcare innovation podcast brought to you by Medcase, the global network of medical expertise. On The Grid, we explore the stories of leading medical experts, startups, and organizations bringing new technologies and services into the healthcare arena. The Grid is hosted by Kyle Giddens, the CEO of Medcase. So today we have the wonderful Yoav, and Yoav is the head of innovation and many, many other titles for Health IL, a leading mm-hmm. NPO uh, here in Israel, uh, where he is sits on the pulse of everything to do with healthcare and technology. Welcome, Yoav. Hi. This is fun. I'm excited. Good, good. You should be excited. You should be excited. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start easy, gonna, and uh, really the goal is to have fun. So, okay. so just double tap when you stop having fun, okay? <laughs> I feel like we need a safe word. We need a safe word. We do. Okay. We do. It's healthcare. Fun. <laughs> uh, anyways, it's it's wonderful for you to be here. I'm I'm going to ask, who do you think, from your perspective, is currently doing machine learning on your healthcare data right now? whether it's on your phone or just in the general sense. Who's doing machine learning on my healthcare data? Yeah, who cares about you? Anybody. Any, anybody. Anybody. Anybody and everybody who can, especially in Israel, because Israel doesn't actually have a policy for healthcare ownership, data ownership. Yeah. So if I was at the hospital at Ichilov, I'm a Maccabi member of the Ministry of Health. Everyone here is selling my data to whoever they can and making money off of it except for me. So my assumption is that anybody who has access to my healthcare data is trying to run some algorithm on it. Yes. Are, are you comfortable with that? Or it is what it is. You know, like we've all signed off on it. Yeah, it's right? true. It's There's... true. I love my tailored ads. Why not tailored healthcare? You know. Look, maybe it'll get there. Hopefully, it'll get there. But my assumption is that everything that you've touched regarding healthcare, any system you've been a part of has access to your data and is trying to utilize it for some purpose. Let's hope and pray and assume that it's for the purpose of saving others people's lives and improving healthcare in general. But yeah, everyone's running algorithms on my stuff. That's good. And yours. And yours and yours. Yes. We're we're all we're all prey to the wonderful data overlords. Uh and and like from that perspective, do you see like large tech companies doing a better job in terms of eventually managing your health? That's a really interesting question. Um, Look, if you look at the stuff going on in the States, you look at major tech companies, they're making clear inroads to increase their footprint into healthcare. Whether they'll be able to do it in a better fashion than traditional institutional healthcare is a major question and I think it has yet to be proven. Um, I do think if you parse out the different aspects of healthcare that the major tech companies clearly have a value add, especially look at like cloud services, you know, like as a component of healthcare, obviously go use AWS, Google, Microsoft, whatever, as opposed to like building some homegrown, here's the Ministry of Health, we're gonna make our own cloud policy or a cloud service offering. So with certain aspects, techs can definitely do a better job. Um, with other aspects, the actual like outcome of health, that has really yet to be proven. I mean, you can see hints of it, you know, like Apple Watch, atrial fibrillation, and this and that, whatever. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if healthcare is improved by certain aspects of tech, but the traditional healthcare system, in my opinion, will still remain. Like, what can you do? People live and die in the real world yeah. and get sick. And at some point or another, some of these people have to go to the hospital. You know, like, I don't foresee Microsoft doing, you know, open heart surgery anytime soon. Yeah, probably not tomorrow. Yeah. But in a decade from now, like, Amazon's making, like, clear inroads in terms of telehealth. And- yeah. Prescriptions yeah. and probably carrying your home next. Yeah. So and look, a lot of the piping comes from these tech companies anyhow, as it exists, uh, and they'll continue to do so. Um, the best situation is kind of the interplay of the best of both worlds. So both 
both traditional players and tech coming together to yeah to do yeah. good things yeah. for our health. Yeah. And eventually, that'll that's what'll happen. I don't know how it'll play out economically. I don't know what ownership tech companies will have, whether it be control or economic ownership. I don't know, but um, eventually, there's going to be some merging between the two. Yeah, like Amazon, Mayo Clinic, something, something like that. Yeah. They'll, they'll have to fight on who whose name goes first on the on the building. Uh, nice. And so you sit at, I guess, the center of innovation here in Israel. So I work at a really weird place, right? It, it actually is very hard to explain what this is. It's It's the only national kind of ecosystem for health tech innovation, right? It, it, what I mean by national is that it's this total separate nonprofit, but the people who sit on my board are the Israeli Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Economy, uh, and the Innovation Authority. Like the overall mandate is to integrate technology into healthcare, but that's extremely difficult, right? There's always issues with process and workflow differences and, and economic differences and motivation, whatever, all this stuff and regulation policy. So the approach that Health AL has is let's understand all these issues first before just trying to plug in some startup or some tech company. Um, so the bulk of the work happens with the recipients or the people who are interested in it, whether it be HMOs, pharma companies, device companies, et cetera. And we do two main things with them. A is figuring out what they really need, their challenges, their issues. How do you define that? How do you prioritize that? How do you strategize that? And then the next point, which is equally important, is how do these organizations operate? Like, what can they offer the startups on the other side? Like, access to data, access to KOLs, access to money. What resources do they have? What resources do they not have? What is a resource? And then conversely on this side of the equation is every startup in Israel, in health tech, all of them, every single one. Uh, I've, I've passed already 1,200 in my internal CRM. Um, and with them, you also do a deep dive to figure out what they're really offering, what they really need, what stage they're at, clinical validation, yes, no, blah, 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 blah. And over the course of the year, you try to integrate one with the other. I mean, the overarching goal is for that the citizens of Israel and also abroad can enjoy all this technology that's being developed in one way or another. Just getting to the point where we can enjoy it is extremely complex. And in order to make it work, you need to have a deep understanding of the complexity. Otherwise, you're just making ad hoc meetings that lead nowhere. So you're the best matchmaker. In I'm, I'm like a like, big matchmaker. Like, I'm, I'm effectively nice like matchmaker, a national matchmaker. matchmaker. Make me 100%. a match. There, there you go. 100%. 100%. 100%. It's just a very deliberate, deep dive process. But yeah, sure. I'll go with it. Yeah. What have you seen from your perspective is like the biggest pain point facing the healthcare system here in Israel? And then we can zoom out and then say on... From what perspective? From the perspective of the system, from the perspective of the startups, from like from, from, from whose the perspective? And, like me as somebody, if I broke my leg tomorrow, like am I having a, a good time like <laughs> outside of the broken leg? Look, I, so first of all, the system in Israel is good. I will state that outright, right? There's issues like every other country, but when you look at it and compare it to other countries, the healthcare system in Israel works and it works well people get high quality care um in a manageable and 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 manageable time frame um the economic structure behind it works uh you know like the money goes in the money goes out um and and the healthcare system here works and it works well especially as compared to other countries especially when i compare it to the united states um that's a whole other topic we can discuss. Oh, we will, don't worry. Yeah, so the issues here are kind of like, it depends what you're looking at. There's always issues about data integration and data silos and how do you overcome that. Uh, cloud policy still doesn't, you know, needs to be developed. Um, things like how do you engage kind of the, the whole concept of health equity to peripheral populations, you know, like the Druze community, the ultra-Orthodox community, the Arab-Israeli community, they engage with the healthcare system in different ways. How do you 
bridge that gap, whether it's cultural, whether it's technological, whatever. There's issues that are unique to here, but overarchingly, I will have to say that the Israel healthcare system is really good, especially when you compare it to other countries. Yeah. I mean, I mean every country has their issues, but like... For sure. For yeah. sure. But would you say, like, what, what would you say is, like, if you could wave a magic wand, and I, I gave you the power. Sure. Like, what is the three things that you would change tomorrow... To make the system here even better? Yes. Number one, um, the whole concept of data integration. Um, Israel very much likes to tout that they have all this, you know, reams and troves of, of digitized healthcare data. And that is true. But there is a big gap between the existence of healthcare data, the access, and the relevancy of it, right? And that step from existence to access and from access to relevancy is something that the country struggles with. Um, there's a lot of agendas at the national level uh, and a lot of money and a lot of support and a lot of programs to try to bridge that gap. But I mean, that's a big thing, right? And sometimes it gets into really technical things like different uh, syntax, like is it fire? Is it HL7? Is it snowman? Is it ICD-9? Is it ICD-10? Is it ICD-11 that just came out? Like all these things, you know, data silos, uh, uh, um, manual adaptation from one to another, all of these things. If you could solve that, that'd be a huge value add, um, not just for the startups who are touching this data and want to do stuff, but also for the continuation of care of the actual citizens, yeah. right? The pass off from one to the other. So that's a big one, um, especially when you consider the fact that other countries are making a lot of strides. Yeah, they so, have like a unified backend yeah, healthcare so, system. Yeah, with... so what pro happens is that this kind of like this primacy of Israeli healthcare data that was a huge part of the narrative and a relevant part of the narrative, like I would say even 10, seven, five years ago, that primacy is decreasing quickly. So you do kind of need to play catch up. The country definitely needs to be able to catch up from that perspective, from the data and the relevancy perspective. Um, I would say that's a big one that should be addressed. That would be my number one. Basically to normalize access to data. Standardize, standardize. normalize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. once you solve those things, then it also becomes more affordable, right? Because you don't have to spend the time, effort, and money to take the data that's digitized but still raw and make it accessible and relevant yeah so if you can solve that you can also decrease the cost of all the operations behind it whether sure. it's a startup working with it whether it's the system paying for whatever yeah. so there's okay. a lot to be said there and and then it's much easier to run those beautiful algorithms on sure too. on my data on, on your data exactly. my data it's again that that insight wonderful and so so that's that's the number one is the, is there another one that comes to mind or uh I mean, that's the big one. There's other, like, there's other things that definitely could be addressed and improved, like the variance in, in, in resources between the big three hospitals and those in the periphery. Um, definitely something that could be improved, given the, the hospitals and care centers that are not three, four big ones in the middle, um, the support they need. Uh, it's not just for the healthcare organization themselves or the institution, but it's also for the population base that approaches and goes and utilizes these peripheral uh, places. So there's other stuff, but that I mean, now we're getting to like really, the, yeah, yeah, the minutia. Yeah. So let's let's zoom out. Let's sure. zoom out and uh, and say, you know, COVID was a huge sea change for for healthcare and access to healthcare, and you know, changed my behavior and your behavior and everybody else's behavior. Uh, when you look to the, the US, uh, and we'll, we'll, jump, we'll jump there now, you know, what do you see was a success in terms of gaining better access to healthcare if, if that happened, you know, maybe through telehealth or remote, remote delivery of care and, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on, on, on that system versus the, the Israeli system in terms of approach? Specifically regarding... Okay, okay, so let me try to unpack this. 
Sure. Because there's a lot. Oh, there's a lot there. there. Right. So first of all, like the issues of healthcare, it's not that suddenly they occurred because of Corona, right? They were always there. It was just exacerbated and put to the forefront because of COVID, right? There were always way beforehand issues with access to care. Um, You know, the issue of telehealth, like all of these things already existed. It's just COVID just kind of put it in the face of everyone. Um, The big difference between Israel and the U.S. regarding it is that Israel, A, enjoys a small size, um, and B, it's centralized. So even if you look at the example of like vaccine rollout, right, vaccine rollout in Israel was completely centralized. It was run like a military operation, right? Even logistically, there's only one point of entry where all the vaccines could go to, and that's one airport. Across the street from the one airport is the storage facility, the cold storage facility. I believe it was Tevas that was used, right? And then the distribution, I believe, was trucks from the military, the the, the IDF medical corps, right? And then it goes straight hub and spoke distribution. So that's something that you can do when it's a centralized system. Um, same thing, all the telehealth stuff, right? All the telehealth stuff, because it's a small country, you don't even need cloud, you just lay pipes. Like you connect all the pipes and that's how you're able to do a test in one location, have it appear the next morning already in the app for your HMO. And that's because it's small and you can literally just pipe these things. So that size factor of it and the centralized factor of it was a very stark difference to how, you know, COVID was treated in the United States or in whatever. You know, I think that was a huge benefit to it. Like it was run like a military operation, honestly. It was crazy. Um, but I think much like in the United States, now that we're in this like post-COVID normalized, whatever, mm-hmm. COVID normalization world, where you saw this huge spike in usage telehealth and then a decrease now it's stabilized. Same here in Israel, by the way. Those are the same, that spike in, in telehealth usage and then kind of the, the tapering out. Now. Yeah, the tapering out and normalization. Obviously the delta before and after is higher, um, but it still isn't fully utilized. It's still, you know, like there's a lot of opportunity. I think we're only in the beginning of utilization of telehealth as a concept period. Oh, I, whether I, it's, I, I tend to agree. Yeah, whether it's remote diagnostic, remote treatment, remote monitoring, remote alerting, however you want to define it, there's so much more potential that could be tapped into. Yeah, yeah. And, and so from from your perspective right when you you know i i, I read your your latest blog post in terms of value-based care oh really yeah I, okay I, i'm one of your fans what can i say all right and and i don't know if this is good or bad oh, oh let's 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 get into it um you know obviously you know we want to measure outcomes and it's it's sometimes very hard to close the loop because as you mentioned before data is sort of everywhere and not centralized and and definitely not very accessible for insights so you know obviously the united states has made a big push into value-based care and i totally disagree the united states is playing lip service to value-based care well on in in theory that's where they're they're headed and now dollars are being reimbursed for value-based care as more dollars are being reimbursed for episodes i agree but value-based care the issue with value-based care isn't a data issue it's an economic issue right first of all fee-for-service exists because it works right it has negative ramifications because it can create a lot of bloat and a lot of waste but people use it because it's measurable because you can quantify, I did this specific procedure, this anesthesiologist was on site for this surgery for two hours. Like you can quantify all of this. Like obviously this creates a lot of bloat, a lot of waste and has no correlation to whether there was success or not. Right. So value-based care looks to go the opposite and say, okay, let's look at if this whole thing was successful and bulk this entire thing, which is great. But value-based care works well uh, I think when there's two main conditions, right? The first is that it needs to be easily quantifiable, right? And that comes both at the beginning, the baseline, and the outcome. 
right? And that's really hard to do with things that are chronic and long-term. Like how really can you figure out the baseline of, you know, oncology? Each patient is totally different. The outcome is totally different. It takes years and there's so many different things. This is different than like an ACL surgery, right? The baseline there is the same for all patients. Yeah, Yeah, input. Everyone got the same ACL. They got the same surgery. Output's the same. Within 12 months, you shouldn't walk it. Great. That's the first condition. The second condition is that it needs to be over a quantifiable time frame. The reason for this is because whether the organization, the healthcare organization is public or private or whatever, at the end of the day, there's a bottom line that's, you know, has to come into some fiscal cycle that's manageable. Sure. So value-based care, the ones that I'm seeing, you know, especially the programs that are pushed through by the CMS that are most most successful are the ones that have these two things where the baseline and the outcome is easily quantifiable and it's a short time frame right orthopedics fits into this stuff like that but so basically day day surgeries and a lot of it can work you know like yeah frankly you know like that's the stuff that could go eventually it's just really hard to quantify economically something that is so amorphous over a long period of time so that being said it's not kind of like there's this tendency. This that. Yeah, there's a tendency to think that it's this or that, whatever. It's really, really, really complex, right? Like Israel, at the end of the day, is fully capitated system, but it is also completely fee for service. Israel to this day has no actual value based care program. It still works, right? It's a national capitated system, completely fee for service, which is. Interesting. Yeah. Like you would think it's fully capitated. Why not just do, you know, value-based care? And yeah, full capitation is a great starting point for value-based care, but it doesn't have to be. It can be fee-for-service. So getting back to your point about the U.S., um, so the CMS has various different, like, tiers of progression in value-based care. And if you dig into it, the first three tiers are effectively just fee-for-service. They're really just fee-for-service. So I don't buy when, like, some insurance company says, you know, half of our claims now are value-based care. It's really not. It's not. Uh, it could be maybe some episodic whatever. It could be fee-for-service with some, you know, no performance outcome on top of it. But it is not actually value-based care. So what you're saying is it's just very good branding or... I think the intent is right. I think in order... I think it's extremely nuanced. I think people make a lot of false claims about it, especially startups who are like, oh, we're going to do some value-based care, whatever. Figuring out who's really actually implementing value-based care uh, is really complex. And where, if you're doing some value-based care, oh, we're going to do value-based care. You know, I see a lot of startups. We're going to do some value-based care prayer for, I don't know, like... Some pick some crazy chronic disease that takes forever. I don't know. Sure. And then Most you're like, them, yeah. sure, but like, but that, but value based care isn't yet at a point. People can't quantify what you're doing. So, how are you going to plug that into a system that's overwhelmingly fee for service? So, there's movement, it's progressing there. Um, I think it'll take a long time. You will see more and more, you know, bundled episodic payments that eventually get there. Um, countries that already have a national capitated system behind it have a much easier pathway of converting to value-based care. Um, I think capitation, or at least like, you know, that full risk aspect of it is a major component that could help in transitioning to value-based care, but it's going to take a while. Interesting. Yeah. And, and taking the same magic wand from before and and then waving it in, in, in the United States, what would you change to enable you know a better a better system okay so you and i both lived under the well you lived under the canadian system which is effectively the nhs right yes i lived under the u.s system for a long time okay Uh, i was in california i was a kaiser member now i'm a maccabi member but like so kaiser for life woo yeah Kaiser's great. Kaiser Permanente is fantastic. Yeah, but they are. They are actually. That comparison is shocking. The comparison of living, you know, 20 years under the U.S. system and now the last 10 years under a fully national system. And I'll be totally honest with you. Like, I think people in the United States make two major, major, major 
incorrect assumptions about the private versus public debate, right, at the highest level. The first assumption that I see is that public health care is going to be more expensive, right? You hear that all the time, like eh, the whole, you know, all of our tax money will go to pay or whatever. That is a complete fallacy. And the reason is because, you know, the, most of Americans get their insurance through their employer. So they get, at the end of the day, they get their monthly income statement, and there's a carve-out that goes to employer insurance. Our bill here has that same carve-out, it just goes to the tax-based national system. So saying that it's more expensive is incorrect. It's just a different person that's getting your money. Yeah. So Instead the of the employer, it's going to the government. The other thing is that insurance is an economies of scale situation. More people were signed up, the less it is for per person. Like it is a major, major, major economic fallacy to think that stratifying all of the population into their own specific little unique insurance plan creates a cheaper thing. It doesn't. It actually creates a situation where it's more expensive for each individual one. It is substantially cheaper for every single participant when there's more people in the pot. So that's the other thing. And the third big fallacy, uh, well, the second, is this whole, like, you're from Americans. Oh, well, I can choose who I can go to. Super. But we can choose who we can go to because everyone in Maccabi's are doctor, right? But at the higher level, there's this national pool of every care provider in Israel who is also part of our system. We may have to pay a bit more, but I can choose to go to anybody I want in Israel, right? Because they're effectively all in my system because it's a national system. So those two things I see are major incorrect assumptions that people in America, of specifically of a particular uh, uh, political bend, keep saying about public systems. It's going to be more expensive and there's no choice. And the reality is the exact opposite. Public systems are actually cheaper and you get much more choice because everyone's in my system. Everyone's in my network, right? So, so you just make a, a broad... 100%. Broad... Trash the entire thing. To answer your question, trash the entire thing. Start all over with a capitated national system. Honestly. Like, you can see how the inconsistencies of quality and access of care is striking in the United States. The amount of human beings who are, forget the whole pool of non-insured, the strike, the third of Americans who are underinsured, who cannot afford, they would go bankrupt if they have a thousand dollar medical bill. That's a third of America. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's it's, it's 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 shocking to me that like people fundamentally just don't care about the healthcare of other systems, and like this really has come about because I live in a totally different system, the United States system, and it's not going to be more expensive. It's just instead of giving money to your employer to pay for insurance, I'll give it to the government. It's yeah. the same amount. It just goes to a different source. Yeah, I. It reminds me of a buddy of mine who woke up from his surgery that was supposed to be in, in insurance. It was it was covered. Yeah. And it was cleared with the insurance. Everything was, was great. But then he woke up with a $60,000 medical bill because the surgeon who was overseeing the, the surgery, uh, who he had chosen ahead of time, uh, was sick that day. And they had to sub in somebody from out of network. Uh, on on the surgery, and he spent six months fighting the bill, uh, so that they would that they would cover it. Did he win? He did win. Good. But but he know, still had to pay probably ten thousand dollars out of pocket. Well, of course. I so mean, that, there you that, go. I mean, that's part of his insurance premiums. You know, oh, you gotta yeah. you gotta do the copay on the first ten k, yeah. and then then everything else is. So is there. it's really shocking to me. And the private system in the United States creates so many middlemen. Like the whole concept of a PBM doesn't exist in Israel. It's it's you know what a PBM is, what's pharmacy benefit manager? Oh yes, right. Yeah. Like there is no such thing in nationalized. Whether it's in Europe, whether it's like it's not the government buys pills in bulk. 
Makes sense. Yeah, you makes wholesale. sense. I love they Costco. They literally wholesale. Yeah, I love um, Costco. So um, I don't know. So that it's uh, honestly, it's yeah. it's really, really, really disturbing and shocking what's going on yeah. in the United States. And I can't believe people aren't rioting in the streets just about this, really. Yeah, I mean, sometimes sometimes they do, but it's just hard because they don't have access to the healthcare that they need. Uh, I don't know if you've been following, but uh, Mark Cuban, have you seen what Mark Cuban's done? No. Oh, so this oh is, he made his own PBM. He made his own PBM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember yeah, speaking this. Speaking of PBMs, Mark Cuban made his, made his own. And essentially, he is now buying drugs with a standardized markup. I think it's like 10 or 15%. Don't, don't shoot me, Mark. Uh, and it is literally the cheapest pills that you can get and you can direct you know it's fulfilled by true pill and you know he negotiated everything and you know it's cheaper than your insurance like 95 percent of the time so you know there's like a set of leukemia drugs you know they just did this whole this whole expose it's not really an expose it's on the internet and you can google it so i i you know I, like two seconds of research but basically it was ten thousand dollars under uh, the typical plan to to buy these drugs and you know how much it was on on his website no i have no idea 50 bucks how much is it elsewhere elsewhere like if you use like rx or something like that sure you know relatively more expensive I, I don't have the exact numbers but uh like 10 or 15x depending on you know where you're purchasing mm -hmm. it from and so like that spread is i, I guess the profit margin of, of many of these healthcare companies uh yeah and you know i i'm a big believer in better access and we have better access you have better outcomes whether it's to healthcare data or whether it's to um pharmaceuticals when you need it or the clinician when you want to uh, get to them but when you make that easier it becomes more affordable for everybody and i think i think you hit the nail on its head that there's too many middlemen in in many different systems and if you can do away with it then then why not it's just a... look it's not i mean look at united healthcare united healthcare is buying everything possible ever right and they're buying all the stuff and it is yet to be proven that all of this purchasing and centralization of their market power actually benefits patients. You know, like a, it benefits we'll see that somebody. In 10 years. It benefits yeah, it someone. It benefits like, somebody. You know, yeah. it, 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 we'll see in 10 years if this concentration of it, because in a weird way, like if United's purchasing all this stuff, it's almost like they're creating this one national system in a weird way. Yeah. How many, how many, how many people are they covering now? Oh God, I have no idea. Tons. 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 tons Maybe tons. We'll, we'll, we'll find. But they're also like it's... purchasing the different aspects of different that value chain. They're purchasing different aspects of the whole value chain of healthcare, and it, you know, maybe that's what it is. Maybe they're going to be a de facto national system. I don't know. I don't know. I, we'll I, see I mean, how we'll this see. benefits patients in 10, 15 yeah. years. Yeah. I, I mean. I think that everybody's seeing that 25% of the U.S. GDP is going to healthcare, and we can do a better job with that. And sure, it's going to 25% of it, and people are actually in a significantly worse situation health-wise now than they were 15, yeah. 20 years ago. So it's go. I mean, that begs the question of where's all this money going to? If it's not going to better the outcome of patients, then where's it going? Yeah, don't follow the money. Whoever's listening, don't follow the money. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, but like, but yeah, it's really glaring. Living in a living in a country that's fully nationalized, as opposed to the United States, is really a major wake up call. Yeah, I, to, I, I think it just aligns incentives, right? Because it's more more transparent, and you're able to see the the players very very clearly, and where each dollar goes. No, there's still there's still mixed incentives, and there's still you know in every country it's radically different. Like, and it's really nuanced. I, for example, I was just had a meeting with people from uh, Austria, and they were telling me about their system. You know, their system's fully fully nationalized and whatever, but it's so nuanced there too. About they have like 
19 different regions. Each one has their control of their own budget. I mean, it's complex in every country. Yeah. Oh, I just got a... You just got a ping. I, I just got a ping. I got a ping. And so where, where do you see startups playing a role in sort of changing the face of, of healthcare? Um, it's an interesting question because... I was actually just talking about this recently with a colleague of mine about specifically pharma companies. You know, a lot of pharma companies in Israel are approaching startups in one way or another, have some track or have some internal innovation efforts or whatever. And then my question was like, why? You know, it's a pharma company. You're sitting on billions of dollars. Find some startup, just hire a dev shop and do the same thing, right? So startups fit in because they're able to ideally uh, fill gaps or move the needle using technology in a way that's faster and more efficient than an incumbent doing it themselves, right? Otherwise, you know, Pfizer, Roche, whatever, whoever's in Israel would see the startups be like, this is great, and they would just, you know, hire oh, yeah. 400 developers and just do it. Yeah. Um, so, Clearly, there's, you know, when you're looking at an incumbent and they make that decision of we have this issue, we have this challenge that we're going to approach, and they make some internal strategic decision of we're either going to buy something off the shelf, we'll build it ourselves, or we'll partner with some startup. And there's a value add to partnering with that startup still. You know, they can build stuff faster, they can address the technological components in a quicker way, um, integrating them is still hard but i don't know if i've answered your question honestly yeah i mean like i i guess what you're saying is that startups exist because corporates are slow or i mean that's what everyone says right yeah it's, it's not, co corporates are they're not they tend to move slower but it's not because of the people that are slower it's because it's just a heavy mechanism to move and also, it's not necessarily their core business, right? Innovation and technology is not the core competency of Takeda. It's the core competency of maybe AWS, but it's not necessarily the core competency of like Ascension right. or Essen or the NHS, right? Their core competency is delivery of care. Yeah, delivery of care or... and dealing with that mechanism. So, when you look at it from that perspective, innovation is always kind of like the second priority. Yeah. And you really have to fundamentally prove as the startup that your innovation, your technology can tie into their core competency. That's hard. Yeah. Right. And, and like, what can a startup do in order to, to, to so, plant a flag and say, hey, we're here and we can actually deliver. On we can actually do. Okay. So my assumption my assumption is that every startup in Israel or anywhere in health tech is saving lives or improving lives, right? That I'm taking that as a given. Whatever these people are building is going to improve health. Great. Um, the big questions I see are in improving or at least not harming healthcare economics and improving or at least not harming existing workflows and processes. Um, and on top of that, regulation, right? Right. So everyone's saving lives, but these other two buckets uh, are really what differentiates, honestly. And frequently, it is not necessarily technology that's the innovative factor that makes a stellar startup. Like the startups in Israel here that I think are doing a fantastic job, you know, if I look at like the 20 that I really, really love, most of them are not what's are not doing what's known as deep tech, right? They're not doing convoluted neural networks on crazy algorithms and blah, 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 blah. The tech is standard. Their innovation comes from understanding the other two buckets, understanding the healthcare economics and understanding the workflows and the processes. Right. Like, so the innovation is the more operational strategic business aspect of it. So it's a business process innovation. Is what it, it's figuring out how to plug in what you're doing into the existing status quo and, and 
showing relevancy that's beyond just saving lives. Because everyone in Israel is saving lives. Every health tech startup in the world is saving lives. So, so you're saying saving lives, but also save time and money? Uh, sure, you can call it save time and money, but I call it something a little more... I, I think it's really understanding fundamentally who's paying for what and why, and who's touching what and why. Those are the two aspects, the economic aspect and the process aspect. Interesting. That's really what's going to make a difference between some technological whatever. Otherwise, they're just a hammer looking for a nail. And there's tons of hammers looking for nails for in sure. Israel, abroad, whatever. Yeah I, I, yeah, I definitely hear that. So, yeah. like, from if you had to give a line, and it, and it was your advice to, to startups who are innovating within healthcare. You know, what would be your, your, your statement? I would start with that, figuring out who's paying for what and why and where you fit, fit into that, where you fit into that actual money chain. We'll put it that way, yeah. right? Like yeah. it's it's about. I think it's called value chain instead of money chain. Sure. It's a good rebranding. Money chain, it's, whatever. It's a good the value chain, you know. It's, value you know, chain makes it sound like positive. Like oh, we're kind of no. It's just, there's a flow of there's, cash there's flow, from one yeah. place to another, and you need to understand where that money's flowing and why and how you fit into that, you know. And like the other aspect that I see frequently, that's uh, going back to what's on the board there, like that concept of I see a lot of founders who are making, you know, there's always that slide. Yeah, here's our competitors, right? You make some matrix, right? Here's, here's, here's criteria A, here's criteria B, and we're super great yeah, as compared up to criteria. Yeah, up, up into the, the right, right. Great, you know, it's a two by two axes, throwing, you know. Throwing buzzwords and here's our thing, right? Yeah. And the approach of competition needs to be different, right? I did this lecture recently for one of the accelerators here in Israel about I gave an example of uh, this company that's making this like uh, wearable jogging coach. Great, right? So uh, I asked everyone there, I was like, who's the competitor for this thing? I'm, I'm going to ask you, like, let's say I have a wearable coach, coach for jogging coach. Who's the competitor? I, I would say like a Fitbit. Okay. You know, my, my AirPods maybe. Okay. So I define competition as totally different. And the competition is running with nothing at all. Oh, wow. Right. Imagine running without music. So this creates a different strategic decision for the startup. If you want to compete against the existing other, you know, Fitbit, whatever, da, 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 that's going to dictate how you sell that value proposition because you're selling yourself to a population that already is using whatever, right? And that can be added features. That can be this. That can be that, whatever. If you're going to compete against the whole population of people who run with nothing, which by the way is still the overwhelming bulk of people who jog, your value proposition is different. Your value proposition is, look what added benefit you can get from using a wearable period. So so, so you're talking about what, like selling from, from nothing to something versus selling something to something, because then you can compare yeah. apples to apples versus, you know. All, all I'm saying is that like, that thought process is another area where I see a lot of startups struggle with, you know, like, especially here in Israel, I'll see startups in Israel who are talking to me about, oh, we're going to sell in the United States. And then it you go, pains you. I, I it pains it me pains because you. I lecture about this stuff and I write about the stuff so much and I consistently see these recurring themes, themes, right? So the startup will come to me and say, oh, we're going to sell this to the United States. We're going to sell this to the VA, to Kaiser, whatever. Blah, blah. And then you look at their competition. Their competition is that little matrix with like three startups in Israel. And I was like, but there's five startups who are doing something very similar to you in the United States. Each one's raised $100 million. Address that if that's your market. So I see that as another major area where startups are not and that differentiation can be very subtle, right? It's like Uber and Kareem, exact same product. The only difference is Kareem is in Arabic. That's it, right? And that can be your differentiation. And that's legit. That's all the difference. That's all the difference. Yeah, it's different legit. Different target market. And you can say, everything. just own it, saying we're going to do the exact same thing as whatever plush care, but in Germany and in German. That's our only differentiation. Great. Own it. Go with it. Germany's a massive market. Know, know who you are. And know know yeah. why you're special. Or... Yeah. And so I, there's a lot of learning that I think 
Israel's great at producing tech for tech's sake, right? Israel has a high concentration of highly technical people, very qualified, can produce high quality stuff in a short amount of time. Um, and you see a lot of it and it's a wonderful place to do alpha testing for all this stuff. But if you want to expand and be legitimate outside of Israel, you need to think beyond just the tech about the workflows, about the processes, about the, the, the differentiation, about trends that are going on, whether it's in Europe and the United States, you know, economic models of how different players work and operate. That's really what's going to differentiate. Very nice. I don't know if I summarized. I wanted a monologue. Dude, it's a good monologue. Oh. You, know, you have an audience. So, yeah, look, so, it's so, just, so, you know, so. these, uh, it's it's just, you get to the point where, like, how, how uh, you would expect some of this to... To sink in? Yeah. To sink in. Well, hopefully. And some people do, you know, I've, there's some amazing founders in Israel. Amazing, amazing founders. The startups here that I think have unbelievable, like, I'm constantly learning more about the healthcare system in general yeah. and all the nuances lately i've been kind of exploring more and more about europe i think there's unbelievable opportunities in europe that at least people in israel tend to overlook right the tendency is like oh we'll go to the united states the vcs are also like oh we'll go to the united states fine um so i see a lot of like i see a lot of incorrect assumptions about europe both from founders and also from investors um, so i'm personally just trying to understand it more europe is not a single market yeah right? it's it's multiple markets all at once and so for a startup looking to excel you know you want to go after typically big markets or be a big fish in a, in a smaller pond and just also it. fine yeah 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 so you know as as we're coming to to a close you know what's what's a piece of advice that you would give policymakers health systems and then startups oh wow i'm i'm so not the person that's good that's that's why i asked so, you because you come from i'm gonna a go and give advice to like the ministry of health i don't know i don't even know where to begin with that you know Just, advice to startups we talked to yeah. we talked about so i don't so, i don't know advice to like the healthcare system i don't know i don't know would you say listen listen to you more is that what you would tell them <laughs> No, look, I work with the Ministry of Health a lot, day in, day out. Um, and sometimes it's push, you know, like we'll push through stuff that we think is relevant. Sometimes it's pull, you know, like they'll pull us in to stuff. And sometimes they'll disagree with them and say, you should put resources and money in this direction instead of this direction. And that's fine. You know, like oh. at the end of the day, my organization and the governmental organizations were actually all fundamentally on the same team. Yeah. You know, like... In many situations, I'm brought in as the mirror to what's going on at the national level. Like, what's really going on with, you know, the pilot program in Israel, what's happening with it, uh, funding gaps, what's happening with it, where is it going, you know, like we're putting money in this or that, whatever, how's it going? Um, so I don't really have, I mean, I, who am yeah. I to tell the government, be like, that's what you should do? Yeah, tell them, tell them, come <laughs> on, tell them. Who would you tell the Ministry of Health? Uh, I, if if I had the opportunity, I would say that standardization and access uh, on healthcare data would be a big win. Yeah, but then you're just taking my answer from earlier. I didn't say that it was a bad answer. Okay. And and you know we, we know a few things about about that area, like uh, from a different perspective, uh, and you know increase when when you increase access both on the digital level, uh, and combine that with education concurrently, I think that that's better better for me as a user of, of the healthcare system you know being able to get my prescriptions at home which was a big rollout that just happened at least in tel aviv uh doing so at a national level so people don't have to travel uh for for their health you know more health at home when you can because that's typically a comfortable environment in most cases in most uh in most homes uh, and and br really bringing the quality of care to the individual rather than expecting the individual to travel to the quality of care, which in of itself is very difficult. So, you know, I would say a reversion to like the the old school model where the doctor knocked on your door and then walked in. Uh, I don't know how scalable that is. 
Mm. But but we do have a phone that allows you, um, and eventually remote wearables that allow you to have almost a similar type experience uh, within the home. But I but I do think that doctors need more time to do what doctors do, which is actually listen to the whole set of problems after the first five minutes to really understand the person. And I think that that's... Uh, look, I agree with everything you're saying. The difficulty is implementing all that. Oh, yeah. You know, somebody has to. Nah. Somebody has to. And eventually, we'll move more towards that. I'm not saying we're going to have, you know, Tesla robots tomorrow. But, you know, in two or three decades from now, you know, I, I don't see it as such a absurd thing to to really have healthcare at home a, a real reality. So I want to show you something. Okay. And we'll end on this, right? Okay. I'm going to show you something. I'm going to open this up. I want to show you something. And maybe I'll show it to the camera. Okay. I found this recently, actually, from my father. Um, my father is a big antique radio buff. That's what he does in his retirement. And yeah. That's cool. Like, yeah, he buys C like CB old radios. No, also, like, just wait, wait, wait. like oh, so I want to like show you something. Vacuum tubes, like yes, yes. yes. He'll buy the tubes. He'll buy whatever. the tubes. That's old. Yeah, school. yeah. Well, he's an engineer. And this is what he does. So okay. I want to show. He he found this for me, and I had to show it, and, and I had to do this. This was. Let me open this up. This was the image from. So I'll, I'll do a play-by-play -play for for those. No, we'll show it to the camera listening too. Listening at home. Check it out. The Radio Doctor. This is from 1930. Oh See wow! See this image? Yes. It looks like a TV. This was a... from a trade journal in 1930. It's a TV, right? Where there's all these dongles attached to the TV, right? thermometer whatever and on the other end within the tv frame the you see the doctor yes and the doctor is seeing the patient on his screen so telemedicine as a concept has existed since 1930 probably before but right but here's this proof that as the concept it's been what 90 years almost yeah i mean all these things exist today yeah. pretty much on your apple watch so yeah it just took 90 years it just took 90 years so you're saying there's hope. There is there's hope. hope. There is hope. You know, maybe for our grandchildren. No, there is hope. I'm not. I don't want to be too pessimistic about yeah. it. I just think it's complex. I think it's really, really, really difficult. I think it's a lot of competing interests. Even in a national country like Israel, is a. It takes a a lot to align the stars. For sure. Well, I guess we could say health is complex, but hopefully today. We unraveled just a little bit of it. And those startups that understand the complexity, honestly, are the ones that are going to thrive. Oh. Those who enjoy and live and breathe the complexity are the ones that are going to thrive. There you go. Let's untackle that Gordian knot. There you Until go. Until next time. Thank you, Yoav. It was a great pleasure this having you. It was a pleasure. You. This I was hope a lot these of things fun. are fruitful for you guys. Until next time. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Thanks for joining us on The Grid, brought to you by Medcase. If you were a fan of this podcast, Share, like, and follow, and visit us at medcase.health for more information.